Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The word of the Lord. Be seated. Good morning. My name is Vincent Hoppe. If I haven't met you, I'm the pastor here at Grace and Peace. And so, for the next five weeks, we are going to be on this roller coaster learning about politics. And the reason why we're talking about it is because everyone else in the world is going to be talking about it. And we, as God's people here gathered, need to be able to put on the lenses of Scripture so that we would be able to see the world rightly and interact with our neighbor who may vote differently from us. But in 2016, I have to uh, confess something. I sat in my basement in shock and amazement while my elitism allowed me to look at the television and not believe what I was seeing, but mildly scoff. And my reasoning is, is as Trump was being elected president, I was saying to myself, how could this be? I had thought this whole primary run was some kind of weird ploy that he had schemed up, and then somehow he won the primary, and then he won the election. And I sat there in shock and amazement. And so for the next few weeks, I tried to figure something out. How in the world do people vote for Trump? Because in my brain, in my imagination, I could never imagine anyone differing from me because I am so brilliant and so smart that they should be able to see the world that I see it. But in my, like, just, just my elitism, I started asking people why they voted the way that they voted. And you know what came out? They actually had reasons. And it shocked me. 
And it revealed something to me that I am too politically tribal. After the 2016 election, the division of America, American church hit an all-time high, but it didn't have to do with difference in teachings on baptism, is there a rapture, whether the music had too much or not enough groove in it, or if the youth pastor's skinny jeans were getting too tight. Instead, a generational gulf was opened up amongst millennials and baby boomers, especially in the church. One saw in what appeared to be an unholy alliance between Republican politics and Christ's church. And then the other side looked at the others and believed that they had compromised the essentials of life from the gospel for the sake of fitting in. I personally witnessed a mass exodus of friends leaving what they saw was hypocrisy. I also had numerous friends discuss how they held their noses while voting while still others were confident that the president-elect was going to be the best representative of Christian values the world has ever seen, ever. It was totally big and great. Since then, polarization and division have gone deeper. And it isn't just generational, but it is absolutely, truly political and tribal. The political divisions have become the bias or the lenses in which we evaluate many things. This seeing things through political lenses and creating divisions of, uh, is, is a result of kind of, of tribalism and how it has sneakily kind of come in there and taken away and divided people even in God's church. And if it can go- divide God's people, it most certainly can be dividing the country. Tribalism is defined as the state or fact of being organized in a tribe or tribe. The behavior and attitudes that stem from strong loyalty to one's own tribe or social group. So whether it be mask wearing, meeting regulations, or discussions about racism, you can usually tell how people are going to respond by how they voted. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that either side doesn't have legitimate arguments. Say that to yourself, though, Pastor. My political opponent has legitimate arguments. But what I am also warning—I am also warning against dismissing and demonizing opponents because they are not with your tribe. What tribalism does is it hijacks our ability to see our own shortcomings and consider the virtues of our own opponents' arguments. My point today is not, and will not be, for the next five weeks, tell you who to vote for or how to vote. Well, I can tell you how to think about how vote, how we should vote or that you should ha- shouldn't have political opinions. Nor am I telling you not to vote. I absolutely have political opinions. I was a poli-sci major who, when I was cleaning out my dad's stuff, realized that I had videotaped Bill Clinton's impeachment trial from beginning to end, five videotapes long. Okay? Just put that one out there for you. I have seen every political debate from George W. Bush and, and Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Just, I have political opinions. Okay? I'm a political science major. Okay? That's, that's where my brain operates. But I'm not telling you that this is the way God does things. I'm not you know, I'm trying to elevate political preferences to the position of orthodoxy. Once we start doing that, we have litmus tests who say that you're in Christianity or you're out of Christianity, okay? So we can push other people around. 
to condemn others, including our brothers and sisters in Christianity, because we have baptized a political belief as a party platform of true, of true believers, is akin to putting pineapple on pizza. It is moralization of the gospel. It is to put a legalistic fence before his grace. And it isn't Christianity at all. For example, there was a famous pastor who recently took to social media to state that if you don't vote for Trump, you're not a Christian. But then on the other side, there have been people who question your Christian character if you do vote for Trump. And so you're in the catch-22, so what do I do? Many of us are stuck. Maybe some of us are traumatized by politics, especially as young people going, what's in the world? And we're tired of this back and forth, tit for tat, Twitter uh, just yelling at people. This type of thinking is not new to us just today, but rather it's been in the system for a long time. Paul seems to have experienced the same thing throughout his ministry, and it's present here when we read in the in the first, uh, book of First Corinthians. I almost said one Corinthians. That would have been weirdly ironic. Anyway. There are divisions that have grown up in the church in Corinth. There were a diverse group of people to begin with, okay? So there's these different ethnicities coming together, different languages coming together in church. So if you can imagine, unity was probably hard. Not only was unity hard amongst different ethnicities and languages, now suddenly you have people saying, oh, I'm more approvable, or I'm of the group that follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow Jesus. Like, I'm better. My standing in this group is better. And you guys over there are getting a less than suitable discipleship method. You, you might not even be Christian, is the way it was going. This kind of way of looking and uh, in, in forming unity is based on merit and self-righteousness. Rather, Christianity is not based on merit or self-righteousness, but rather on Christ's merit and righteousness for us. And so Paul is insisting that we are to agree to have no divisions and to be united of the same mind and the same judgment. He's not saying that we should all vote the same way. Otherwise, we're back to creating litmus tests for being in the tribe. Rather, as Paul is insisting, that there is a unity greater than political affiliation that you can be united because your righteousness is not based on what you have done or who you associate with, but because the one great true king has decided to take on the form of a human and come and be with you, and he is the one who associated with you, who is the political outsider, to be part of his kingdom. It means this, that in Christ we can have unity according to Paul, and that we can work for the common good of all, and while still not voting the same. It means that Democrat and Republican can come to this table and eat and drink together without having a hint of hiding in shame because of our candidate or needing to shame others because of theirs. We can have solidarity and zero superiority because the source of our righteousness is the same for the Democrat and the Republican. Well, I'm not saying that we should agree all the time. I think maybe if our superiority is built in the fact that Jesus Christ, the true superior one, came to us who were not superior, if that's at the basis, 
Coast, and maybe we could sit down over some uh, hot apple cider on a hayride this afternoon and have discussions about our disagreements politically. And while not shaming or hating the other person and realize they have reasons for voting the way they do. The challenge to this type of unity in the next few weeks will be this invisible downward force of political tribalism. Like gravity, we can't see it, but it has a powerful pull on the church. It can divide it from its first love. Political tribalism is a force dividing the church. Therefore, we need to be aware of the downward force, and we need to strengthen the inward drive toward unity. We need to be aware of the downward force and strengthen the inward drive toward unity. So let's first look at the downward force. It works like gravity. Writer and theologian Jake Meter writes about a friend's lyric in a song saying, Love is a circle that turns with no end, but life is a line under gravity's bend. There are invisible forces that cause life to bend. Christianity reforms our love, but gravity of our world has many downward forces seeking to keep it from forward progress. What I mean is this. Whenever I ride my bike, my love for cycling is what keeps me going. But there are downward forces. If I'm going up a hill, the downward force of the grade of the road plus gravity is going to make my inward drive falter. It pulls me down the hill as I feel the burn in my legs. And then suddenly my love of cycling turns into, oh my gosh, what are you doing, homie? This is ridiculous. Especially if you're going up Cheyenne Canyon and there's a little part that's like 22% or like whatever, 16%, and it makes me want to cry. But those downward forces can push against our love. It can divide us from our through internal love. And there are many downward forces, and there always seems to be something threatening God's people. You know, like moralism, or maybe it was legalism, or maybe it is uh, Arianism, Gnosticism, Antinomianism, or any other ism that this nerdy man over here has read in a theology book. And so tribalism is just another brand of the same type of gravity, a type of moralism that creates a sense saying, if you're going to be over here, you need to jump the fence, rather than saying that Jesus Christ is the one who broke down the fence for us. And so amongst the Corinthians, it was threatening the unity of the people. People were finding themselves superior based on who had baptized them or based on whose teaching they followed. Paul then states that he did not come with words of eloquence for them to follow, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he believed that preaching about Christ's power and weakness on the cross is the strength of unity in the inward drive. There is, there, but there is a potential to get pulled down by external forces which divide people by prioritizing linguistics over love and creates tears of self-righteous superiority. Jesus in the Gospels faced similar problems. Historically, there were four major groups within Jerusalem. You're about to get a New Testament survey history right now, so pocket that. This is now your graduate level teaching. Uh, 
The graduate level teaching is that when Jesus arrives on the scene, there are four major groups of people. One, there are the Pharisees who were really popular in synagogue. But their, ra- their reason why they believed they were superior and that God was going to approve of them and win, uh, be able to rescue them was because they had followed Torah. And so they had little badges of merit, little badges of righteousness that they did because they followed Torah. Then the next group are the Sadducees, who were in control and in power at, within the temple. They had kind of made friends with the Romans, even though it was contentious, and that they had control of the temple. God, when he came, he was going to be on their side because they had the great badge of worshiping in the temple. Then there is the next group, who are the Essenes. And so they went out into the Qumran community out in the middle of nowhere, and they believed that God was going to love and, and care for them, and then He's going to save them because they had divorced themselves from the culture and had gone out there and wasn't, they weren't uh, polluting themselves by hanging out with a bunch of Romans, but rather they were pure because they had rejected the culture and they were doing things different, and that they, they had rejected it all, and they were out there away from everyone else. God was going to visit them. But yet still, there was a fourth group called the Zealots. And the Zealots were a bunch of people who would uh, fight whenever they can and rally together in order to take out some Roman caravans. And as the Romans came in, they'd waylay the Roman caravans and take them out. And they're like, yes, you know, when God comes back and he visits us, you know what's going to happen? He's going to look at us as we fought against the dirty culture of the Romans, and he said, approve of us. So they had these little badges of righteousness. They had their own little tribal system. But yet we see something different with Jesus. Here's something strange that happened with Jesus. On one end, he has a tax collector named Matthew with him. The interesting thing about tax collectors is that they were generally Jewish people who worked with the Romans, Right? And so there's Matthew, but then on the other side, there's someone named Simon the Zealot. So we have a revolutionary, and then someone who is treasonous at the same time hanging out with Jesus in his party, eating and drinking with Jesus, warmly welcomed with Jesus, probably laying down in the middle of a field, sharing a sleeping mat together. It is as if we have a Democrat and a Republican suddenly dancing in a field, holding hands, and singing songs together. I don't know if you got this image, but it would look like some, there was some prancing in there. But anyway, so you can you imagine Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell giving each other a warm hug of friendship? No, you can't imagine that. That is weird. But yet we have Simon the Zealot and Matthew being mentioned together right next to each other, meaning that they have gotten a priority in their heart far beyond political associations, and they have gotten the kingdom at the center of their being. Notice that they're still identified also by their political affiliation, but they have an identity marker that is greater than that. So this is kind of the downward forces. We see the downward forces of political tribalism being overpowered by the inward drive of love, God's love in our heart that far surpasses anything else. 
Today we have downward forces pushing against this unifying power of love. They happen to be very political. These downward forces are little righteous, righteous badges that we have. Badges include yard signs, bumper stickers, and, and the Met Zinger on Twitter. Just telling you guys, just for kick, I found my favorite political yard sign of all time this week, this week when I rolled over to drop off my child at cello practice and I saw across the street it said, Presidents are temporary, but Wu-Tang is forever. And so if anyone wants to get that for me, I will proudly present it in my lawn. But, we all have these yard signs, bumper stickers, and zingers on Twitter. We flaunt our righteousness and our standing in our political community in, while demonizing others and making fun of people. We call the other side Marxist, right-wing, and extremists instead of listening to them. We make ourselves approvable to the base. Rather, Christianity finds all self-salvation projects to be baseless because Christ has given these people the true base, which is His approval and righteousness. Social media virtue signaling, signaling is, a, is another case of identity markers. We exchange logic for name-calling, calling one side the party of death. Those are a bunch of ideologues. They're elitists. You're a bunch of hippies. You're a snowflake. You're an extremist. You're a nut job. You see, what happens is ad hominem is what we resort to when we are afraid. We're not necessarily afraid of what the other side thinks. What we're afraid of is being exposed as not having the sure ground and standing in our tribe. We're afraid of being found out and social media knows this and has created an echo chamber for us. If you have seen The Social Dilemma, check it out. You will probably throw away your smartphone. You'll find out that it has become a place where you are sold as a product. The algorithm has sorted you out to reinforce what you already believe. It's like stories, products, and news that will reinforce your beliefs. And what this does is it causes blindness. We don't really see ourselves and others correctly. We see all of our great virtues and they are so wonderful and we can't imagine how the other side has any virtues whatsoever. But in the end, it's like looking at ourselves in a carnival trick mirror. So we see all of our good sides pointed out and all the bad sides of everyone else kind of accentuated. And so we are blind to our own faults and we emphasize only what is good. We dehumanize people. And this is mostly one of the easiest ways that our blindness comes out is when we dehumanize people, seeing only a screen or seeing only a mask. Rather, I'm going to challenge you to this. If you disagree with someone politically this political season, I'm going to ask you to hang out with them some form or fashion over the beverage of your choice. Okay? The next thing, though, is we all, it also causes, this echo chamber causes fragility. Tribal echo chamber causes fragility. It makes us uncertain about our standing in the world, and we feel this low-level anxiety always about to erupt deep down inside. We feel that we need to stir up our standing in our tribe, and so we either read something, we look at something, we post something, we react in order to stir up our standing because we're feeling anxious and fragile. 
It causes us to worry about being found out as a fraud in our tribe. It also causes us to lack vulnerability. We become self-protective and defensive. Whenever we see someone disagree with us on social media, we feel the instinct to take them down and show how dumb they are. That they do not have the wonderful intellect that I have. And all this is is a prop to keep me from actually knowing someone and actually letting them see me as who I truly am. We're afraid and we don't want people to see us at all and we lack vulnerability. And lastly, all this anxiety and this lack of vulnerability spirals down into extreme loneliness. Extreme loneliness. It makes us fearful of being known and fearful of knowing other people's differences. And so what we do is we cut ourselves off, feeling like we will never have the right set of beliefs or the right things to say. And so we find ourselves saying nothing at all, and we retreat in order to never be found out. We can also be retreating because we're fearful of everyone else and just waiting for them to go as a tribal troll on us. And so we would rather not talk about anything of substance and just say we're okay, rather than talking about who we're voting for and why we do it. And so this constant tribalism has caused us to be a bunch of... Uh, just handled on social media, or just masked with some eyeballs. Rather, I'm going to encourage you to meet with people face to face and do something different. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 talks about the division of Jew and Gentile, that they were not getting along in the Ephesian church. But, Jesus said, but Paul says that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh on the cross making out of the two people one people, a united people. And the cross is at the center of that. And because the cross is at the center of that, we can have unity between Jew and Gentile. Therefore, we can also have unity between Republican and Democrat, between libertarian and liberal. So, what is our application? One, prioritizes through identity markers. Make sure you are feasting on Christ more than you are feasting on Fox News or the Huffington Post. Make sure you spend more time reading about your true identity in Christ rather than stirring up your identity on social media. Next, be able to give the logic of your opponent before you go and blast someone. If you can represent your opponent's views the way that they would want to be represented, then maybe you understand their, their views. Next thing is be able to know some good things about the other side. If we're to work together for the common good and that for Jesus to actually be known in this world, then we can work together, Democrat and Republican, within these doors even, to show the world that there is a better way of being united. I think this is important. I think the fact that two different sides of the political aisle can come together at one table of Jesus Christ speaks a true and better word to the rest of this world. There are only litmus tests to come to this table 
And to take this identity marker is faith that you did not deserve it. And the one who does deserve it was divided so that we can be one. So let's talk about the inward drive now. Jonathan Hyatt in his excellent book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics, gives an illustration of the human person being like an elephant and a rider. The elephant is big and massive, but yet it can be controlled by this little rider up there on top. But whenever the, the elephant gets anxious, the ele- who's really in control? When it gets scared by a tiny little mouse, or it's hungry because they see a giant group of uh, a batch of uh, five guys peanuts over there. What what happens? Who is in control now? Who is in control is the elephant and not so much the rider. And what Jonathan Haidt says is that tribalism politically it works more on our instincts than on our brain. The elephant is like our instincts or our love. And the rider is like our brain. And so what Christianity, what you and I need to do is strengthen this inward drive, our instincts, these next few weeks. And by doing this, we will speak a better word to, uh, to our friends and neighbors. Deep down, we all have this need and an instinct for righteousness. Whether we think, whatever we think can bring us this standing in the world, this righteous standing in the world, is what we will love most. And whatever we love most, we will find beautiful. And whatever we find beautiful, we will become. It will become our identity and our marker, our identity markers and our badges. If it is politics, then you'll just play the game. You'll fling mud. Will be mean to everybody. If it is Jesus and his selfless sacrifice, even for his enemies, of which you and I once were, if that's at the heart and center, you will demonstrate a beautiful and new way for the rest of this world. What has happened in our time is that politics has captured the heart of many, contending that this is the only way that we can be loved. Instead, we need to know how fraudulent it is in giving us a meaningful identity. Politics can't give it to you. It can't save this world. Hence why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that it is God who gives the growth and concludes saying, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Jesus, or the world or life or death, or the things present or the future. All are yours. You are Christ. And Christ is God. So in the end, the deepest marker of identity is that I belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Christianity, identity is received and not achieved, says Timothy Keller. The importance of this can't be understated. Get it backwards and you will have a mutant cancerous strain, and I'm not talking like X-Men, a mutant cancerous strain of Christianity. But if it is received, then we have no claim for superiority. And politics can't possibly be ultimate. In Revelation 2, 
Jesus addresses that Ephesus church, the one whom Paul said Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh, and out of the two men has become one. But there was a problem. It didn't always last. Things like political affiliation, those downward forces, started overtaking it. And Jesus says this, I have this against you, or the church at Ephesus, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first work, or else I will come to you, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Grace and peace. Maybe it's time that we return to you. Return to our first love. To be transformed by being known and loved in Him. Dante wrote this. Love that moves the sun. Love is, the, is, is that which moves the sun and the other stars. Dante believed love holds the universe together. It holds us together as Christians. Because of this, we need to exercise the heart. We need to see where true unity comes from. And it comes from the person of Jesus Christ. And when that becomes ultimate in our hearts, and the priority of our hearts, then we will see Democrat and Republican eating and drinking together and working for the good of this world instead of working against each other. Regular, we need regular reminders that your political affiliation is not your savior. Although politics can be leveraged for good things, they can't love you back. And so we feast on God in the truest identity markers, not ones of our own making, but ones that have been given to us. James Baldwin says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And we face the tribalism, the downward forces of this world, by strengthening our inward love in order that the tribalism that we see out there can be overcome by them getting a glimpse of what happens in here. Democrat and Republican coming together and eating from the same table. How do we face tribalism over the, new, over the few, next few weeks? Remember your love. Remember who loves you. Remember His never-ending, always and forever love that is in Jesus Christ. We remember the one who was truly, who was truly superior. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of the servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He lays his life down for his friends and his enemies, including you and me. Jesus was divided so we can be united. He was torn down the dividing wall, the a dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. Our unity has become. Our unity is because our tribalism broke into pieces. Our unity is despite political differences. And this is the tribalism that the world needs. That you get into this tribe not because you have earned it, but because you have received it. The tribe created not by proving my worth, but it being given to me. It is because we contributed nothing of our own that we have standing in this tribe.
that's the unity we need. We take out every day for the next few weeks as we will hear everyone yelling and interrupting each other and calling each other names. And I challenge you to refuse to do that because God didn't stand off afar looking at those who were who were, ang- who, who were alienated and rebellious against Him. He didn't stand off from afar, but moved into our neighborhoods and came after us. That's the God we serve. The one who bridged heaven and earth to bring us back. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, meet us now in this supper that we may be transformed to be more like You and that our hearts may rejoice in the goodness of unity with one another because you are the one who unites us. Republican, Democrat, non-affiliated, confused and traumatized even over politics. Unite us together in love with the priority being at the cross and in your resurrection that we may live new lives and be new creations in your story. In Christ's name, amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Now I'm going to ask that you stand and let us affirm our faith as as uh, confessed in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. May grace and peace become forth for the Lord's Supper, and you are welcome, not based on your political affiliation or your standing in your tribe, because our standing here at the table and coming forward is based on Jesus' work for us on the cross. That His goodness takes my badness, and we are reversed. So we stand right.